you describe yourself as an emotional person? So we might answer that question differently depending on how we let our emotions be seen by others. So we lay it all out before everyone. We might say, yes, I'm an emotional person. But if you think of yourself as a bit more reserved and not letting others see how you feel, you might not describe yourself as an emotional person. But the truth is we all feel emotions continually, all the time, and different things stir up those emotions. So here are some examples. Aberdeen being knocked out of the Scottish Cup by a team that is five tiers below them definitely stirs up some emotions. Uh, and the day that happened, that was two weeks ago, I went on to Twitter and I saw all of those emotions. I saw anger. I saw frustration. I saw great joy at the same time, depending on if you support them or not. And maybe another sporting one closer to home is if you watched the rugby yesterday, depending on what team you supported, you might feel great joy. Or if you're a fan of Wales, looking across to my left-hand side a little bit, sorry, Iris, you, you maybe didn't feel that joy quite so much. Okay. Exam results. That's another thing that elicits emotions. As you're waiting for the postman, or it used to be the postman, it's all changed now, I should say. If, you've, if, if you're of my generation, so when, just for the young people here, the way we used to get exam results, you, the postman used to come to the door but before, the, what was that? Oh, the postman left you point, yeah. Uh, and certainly in my household, before they had even got to the door, myself and my sister had lynched the person and just trying to get this envelope out of their hand and just ripping it open just to see what our results are. But today, I still think you get something through the post, but you get a text message earlier in the day. So when you wake up, it's there for you. But anyways, with exa exam results, you might be full of anxiety. You might be full of worry. Or you might have a bit of a sense of excitement. And then when you find out what your results are, maybe it's joy, maybe it's relief, maybe it's something else. The birth of a new family member can lead to joy that is shared with entire communities. The news that someone has taken steps to overcome an addiction brings forth happiness. Maybe the joy of picking a holiday away with friends and family, have that anticipation, that excitement leading up to it. There's that loss of a loved one that leaves a profound sorrow, grieving and a feeling of loss and emptiness. Maybe a job that has gone to someone else that you feel that you deserved can stir up feelings of envy and injustice. But the news of illness can be troubling, can lead to deep questions, despair, and at the same time, it can lead us to trust in God more. We're continually feeling emotions and reacting with emotions in different situations. In our, in our passage today, we have the incredible miracle of seeing Lazarus being raised from the dead. It's a miracle that clearly shows the deity of Jesus and his power over death. It's also one that shows that he has emotions and they were on full display. We were reminded in this passage in, in John 11 that yes, Jesus was 100% God, and at the same time, he was fully man. He felt emotions like we do, but unlike us, he never sinned in those. And so we'll be spending time looking at some of these emotions that were displayed. And so there's three that we'll look at, of how he was angered at death, of he, how he was troubled, uh, the crowd's lack of faith, and how he felt compassion for them. But before we get there, it's worth us just taking a moment just to, con uh, just to consider this miracle. 
incredible miracle. And if there's nothing else that you come away from today, just think on how Jesus raises a man from the grave. It is astonishing. It is mind-blowing that someone who was dead for four days in the grave walked on out of it. There was someone who'd been dead for four days and their heart starts pumping. The blood starts flowing again. There doesn't seem to be any brain damage there at all. He's just walked out of the grave. There's something off where if he had woken up, that would have been miraculous enough. <laughs> but that he walked, or I'm kind of assuming he shuffled because he was still wrapped in linen. But there's something absolutely incredible about it. And we see the power of Jesus on display. This is a clear picture of what it means for us to have new life in Christ, all based on what Jesus does and his power. It's a picture of his defeat of death. The grave cannot hold all those who are known by Christ and who trust in Jesus. This miracle is an example of his restorative power, his power over sin and death, his power to hold all things together and shows that he has all authority. Nothing is outside of the jurisdiction of Jesus. In verse 33, if you want to look there, we find Jesus has arrived in Bethany and Lazarus, his good friend, as I've said, has been dead for four days. He's spoken to Martha and to Mary, and they've both conveyed their belief that if Jesus had been there, Lazarus would not have died. So in verse 33, we read that Jesus was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. Our translations, I don't think, fully convey what I believe was the true emotion that was displayed and felt by Jesus. John Piper on this passage says, I won't be dogmatic here, but I don't think these are emotions of empathy and tenderness. So that first part of that verse, and it's translated as deeply moved, but as you look into the original text, is getting at feelings of anger and indignation. So it says deeply moved, but we need to think of Jesus being angry at something. His anger is at the destruction and the power of the great enemy of humanity. He's angry at death. This power that he would soon forever break. John Calvin on this says, Christ does not come to the grave as an idle spectator, but like a wrestler preparing for the contest. Therefore, no wonder that he groans again for the violent tyranny of death, which he had, uh, which he had to overcome, stands before his eyes. There's another quote from someone called Benjamin Warfield, and he was a Princeton theologian in the 19th and 20th century. And he says, inextinguishable fury seizes upon Jesus. It is death that is the object of his wrath, and behind death, him who has the power of death and who he has come into the world to destroy. Tears of sympathy may fill his eyes, but this is incidental. His soul is held by rage. The raising of Lazarus, this becomes not an isolated marvel, but a decisive instance, an open symbol of Jesus' conquest of death and hell. What we see here is righteous anger. 
Righteous anger is something that we've already seen as we've gone through the Gospel of John. In chapter 2 is Jesus. He drove out traders and money changers in the temple when he made that whip of courts. So we see that righteous anger that he displayed in chapter 2 again here in chapter 11. But this time it's towards death and the devil. He's angry at death that could, if it wasn't for his defeat of it, permanently separate God and man. As Christ went to the cross and died there on our behalf, he showed his perfect love for us, sacrificing himself as the Lamb of God. But don't dismiss this anger, this rage. He is the Lamb, but he is a roaring lion at the same time. And he dealt death a knockout blow on the cross as the sting of death was removed. Righteous anger is good. Righteous anger is something that we can have. But all too often when we are angry, it's mixed up in our sin. It's mixed up in our selfishness and our self-centeredness. It's mixed up in our desires and our wills. And so it's right that we come with repentance to God time and time again when that is the anger that we come with. But righteous anger is possible. In 2015, um, a number of us went out for the first time to South Africa uh, to support some of the missionaries that we support out there, Liam and Rachel Burns. Uh, and so there was, I think it was a, a group of about 10 of us that went out there. And there's a few, few folks in the room who were on that team. And so we went out to work with Liam and Rachel and uh, they asked us to help with a camp for about 100 children and youth. And so they work with them week in, week out, but they look to do a, a camp with them where they get to have about four days with these kids uh, who live in a township and have some of the worst lives you can imagine. They experience the bitterness, the hurt, the awfulness of life in ways that we can't imagine. And so it was our real joy to go and work with them for about four days and we took these kids away. We had an amazing time. Uh, but at the end of that four or five days, whoever it was, and we came back together as a team and we did, as you do, a bit of a debrief. And we were asking people, well, how do you feel? And so some of the emotions that were shared there were sadness. There was some guilt. There was a lot of tiredness that was shared at that time. There was one emotion that someone shared in there and it's always stuck with me. And they said very clearly, I feel angry. Angry at the injustice. Angry at the poverty. Angry at the conditions that the children and the youth were returning to. It was an anger born out of God's heart for those children. And in that moment, it felt so right. What angers us? Do the injustices of this world that move Christ to anger, anger us? Or are we passive? Does death anger us? Does the reality of death, the finality of it anger us? Does it move us towards being used by God to save souls? The idea that sin, that the devil has ensnared someone and dragged them down to eternal separation from God should greatly impact us. Yes, we absolutely should be filled with sadness. Yes, we absolutely should mourn and grieve and be filled with sorrow. Those are absolutely right. But does a righteous anger accompany it? In that same verse, 
So in verse 33, it says, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. The purpose of this book is summarized in John chapter 20, where it says, these are written so that you may believe Jesus is the Christ. And that theme of belief comes up time and time again in, in chapter 11. So if you want to follow along with me, so if you look at in verse 15, as Jesus speaks to the crowd and he says, and for your sake, I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. Then to Martha in verse 26, and everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Again to Martha in verse 40, Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you'd see the glory of God? And in verse 42, as he prays, he says, But I have said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you have sent me. Jesus is asking them time and time again, Do you believe in me? But the response he gets back is, well, there's different responses. So in verse 12, the disciples seem confused. Um, Martha didn't think Jesus could do anything for Lazarus since he had passed away. He says that in verse 21. And then what Martha says is interesting. Mary says the exact same words verbatim in verse 32. And then verse 37, you see the crowds questioning his power. Why is Jesus troubled? Why is he greatly troubled? It's because they don't trust in him and what he has said. John Piper says, Jesus is deeply disturbed that his motives, his power, and his love are being questioned. Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? That's what the crowd asked. Surely he could have, and he didn't. So they question, and they are suspicious of his motives or his power. Even after Lazarus has been raised, we see mixed reactions. In verse, uh, sorry, verse 45, it tells us that some believed. We give praise and we give glory to God for that. But then it goes on until the, at the end of the chapter to basically say that others didn't. Despite the facts that a man had been dead for four days, laid to rest in a tomb during that time, had been bound in linen strips, had been mourned after by his family and community, and on the instruction of Jesus, Lazarus, come out. He had walked out of the cave. Despite all of that, some, including the Pharisees it talks about, did not believe in Jesus, did not believe in who he was and of who he said he was and his words. In verse 46 to the end of the chapter, it shows that, uh, and, it's, and it tells us why. It's because Jesus was a threat to their status and their desires. He was greatly troubled because they didn't trust in him. Even though Jesus is troubled, we see his gentleness in it. And I think that is so important to highlight. I read verse 40, and so let, let me read that. Said so Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? I think we need to be careful in how we impute tone onto people. So when you're reading a text message, when you're reading an email, sometimes we can add the tone to it. And sometimes I think we can do that with the Bible. But Jesus describes himself, I think it's Matthew 11, he describes himself as gentle and lowly. 
So I think for wherever it's possible, unless it is really clear, certainly that is the way I choose to read Jesus' words to us, said in gentleness. And here, I don't think he's harsh. I don't think there's anything sarcastic about it at all. I love that he includes the crowd uh, asking them, he asks them to roll the stone away. If you're about to raise someone from the dead who's been dead for four days, it seems like the easy thing to do would be for Jesus to move the stone. But he, he doesn't. He wants to include people. I love how he prays out loud to the Father because he wants to include them in what he is doing. He's, there's no, I told you so. It's this gentleness in him. Proverbs 3, 5, it's a well-known verse. It says, trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. It is a wonderful verse. But I think we're, if we're honest with ourselves, being honest with myself, I think I probably live out something that looks a bit of the opposite. It probably looks like, Father, if you'll straighten my paths this way, then I'll acknowledge and trust you. Jesus is constantly asking us to trust in him because he knows what is best for us. To trust in him because he sees the bigger picture than what we do. Jesus in his goodness may choose to work through us in some difficult ways to reveal who he is. And that's maybe so that others may believe and for God to be glorified. A life of surrender to all his ways it means that we're open to that and we trust him through that. Do we trust him even when it's painful? And I know that for many in this room, that that is a reality that you have known for years, is a reality that you know in the present. It's a reality that all of us, I think, will come across at some point. When life is difficult, Jesus is not far from us. He's asking us to trust in him, even when it's most difficult. That's what he was asking Martha and Mary to do. Most of you will know that uh, I'm doing a course at the moment with an organization called Biblical Counseling UK. Uh, and so I did a module last term with them, and I've spoken a little bit about that, and I'm doing another module this term. Uh, and so right at the start of January, I think it was starting on the 4th of January, uh, and right at the start, I had to describe myself or who I'd like to be in six words. Now, a lot of you are saying, wow, we're seeing, we're reading about two miracles today. Scott said something in six words and Lazarus was raised from the grave. I did actually manage it. Um, and I will say, I wrote this. I had no idea that I'd be preaching on this passage. And it was, I thought I'd share what I wrote in those six words. And so this is who, what I would like to be. Encouraging, worshipping child, more faith required. I really want to be someone who encourages, and I know I've got a long way to go with that, but I want to be an encourager. So want to be known as a worshipping child of God. And there's that part of more faith required. And I really feel that that is something that God has been speaking to me about probably for about the last 18 months or so. Um, it's about 18 months ago, most of you will know, but some of you won't. I, I took about four weeks off work and because I was struggling with, with burnout and some anxiety. And I really felt in that time, God was saying, what are you doing trying to trust in yourself? Trust in me. 
And then when I was on sabbatical, I was able to go and visit some of our, our missionaries. And in that time, I was just bowled over time and time again by the way that people were living out their faith, just trusting in God. In, in times when it just didn't seem to make a lot of sense, they were fully trusting in God. And then even when I came back uh, into work, the first thing that I did was a youth weekend away. Uh, and we were speaking about the gifts of the Spirit. Um, we had a guy called Ali Ling uh, from the BUS come and share with us. Uh, and in the week leading up to it, myself and Ali were just having a conversation on the phone. And uh, Ali remarked to me, he was just like, and we were speaking about 1 Corinthians 12. There's all these gifts that are there for you, the upbuilding of the fellowship. And he was just like, do you know what, Scott? If I could have one of those, I'd have faith. If I could just have one, Lord, just give me more faith. More faith to believe in who you are and what you say will happen. And I, I couldn't agree with him more. No, for the times when I question and times when I struggle to trust that as we saw in this passage, that he is kind and he is gentle. In his goodness, he's quick to forgive. And he leads me to that question, Father, please give me more of that gift of faith. That gift of faith to hold on tightly to all of your promises, all of them that are yes and amen in Jesus. Faith that you are good all the time, that you will work all things for good, even when that good feels so distant, and I may never see that good. Help me to trust. Help me to trust that you are able to do immeasurably more than I could ask or imagine, that you'll be glorified even in my suffering, and that is what we've seen in this passage. Give us faith to believe that you will complete the good work that you have started. Faith that you will build your church. Faith that you will never forsake me. Faith that you will provide. Please give me faith to believe all these things. J.C. Ryle, um, he was a minister in the 19th century. Martin quotes him often because of the Liverpool connection. I don't need to say anything more there. He says, we need to move from I must see and then I will believe to I believe, and by and by, I shall see. Father, would you give us the gift of faith? Thirdly, we see the emotion of compassion. The shortest verse in the whole of Scripture, Jesus wept, and that's verse 35 before you. Twice in the Gospels, it is recorded that Jesus was moved to tears. So we see it here in John 11, and you see it again in Luke 19, as Jesus overlooks Jerusalem and prophesies of its coming destruction, and that happened in AD 70. He didn't weep at his own pain, at his own mocking, his own execution, but was deeply moved to the point of tears as he considered the pain and the suffering of others. As a reminder of our selfless Savior who came to love and to save others. Before Jesus is two of his good friends and a community who are distressed at the passing of Lazarus. And Jesus sees their pain and he sees their suffering. He sees their loss. And although, as we've just talked about, he's angered at death, he's troubled that they're not trusting in him, we also see that he is full of love and compassion for them. It's not merely that he sees it, but he's not a bystander. He joins them in that loss. Jesus knows 
what is about to happen in the next few minutes. I find it incredible. He knows that in a few minutes' time that Lazarus is about to, to walk out of the tomb. He knows of all the joy, the rejoicing, the hugging, this amazing moment that is to come. But we see that he doesn't lose what is happening in the moment. And he weeps with them. I think sometimes we kind of struggle with that. I think with, with, my, with my kids a little bit. And so when I see that maybe they've fallen over, they've tripped or something, and they've got a little graze, um, I, don't get me wrong, I give them a hug and stuff. Don't worry, I'm not like... But, the, but there is that moment just like, how much am I really in the moment with them here? Or how much am I thinking, I know that in a few moments, they're going to be running around the garden like nothing has ever happened. And I think sometimes that does impact what I'm like with them. I know it shouldn't, but I think it probably does. But what we really see in this passage is that that doesn't, like, Jesus isn't just like standing by us like, oh, guys, just give it away a few minutes. You'll be fine. You'll be fine. It doesn't. He's full of love and he is full of compassion. He is present with them. He sees how they're feeling. He hears their cries and he joins them in that hurt. And for anyone in this room, for anyone who feels hurt, anyone who is struggling, all these kind of different emotions that we've spoken about at the start, know that Jesus knows them and he's not a bystander but he joins you in the moment, even though he knows what's going to be happening in our tomorrows. We have no idea what will happen next week of three years, of five years, of ten years. We have no idea of the joys that we will experience in that moment, but, but he does. But that doesn't mean that he doesn't join us in our moments of pain. Psalm 103 verse 8 says, The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in love. I think another good example as you're going through scriptures of this is uh, with the prophet Elijah. And so in 1 Kings 19, we find him and we find him in the midst of deep depression. And he's actually talking about taking his life. Where we think of just what has happened with Elijah beforehand. And so he's had this battle with the great prophets of Baal. And so there was like, they like had the, the altars there with the bulls on top and, you know, whoever God would burn up bull you know that was the one true god and he had this you know fierce battle with them and god came through showed his power showed who he was and then after that you have this story there's this drought for three years and elijah prays and then you see the small clouds just coming on the horizon and then the, the drought finishes and there's this rain that comes and so elijah has seen god do incredible things awesome things powerful things but then he remembers that he's still being chased and he finds himself in this great depression. Now, what we don't see God doing in that moment is just saying, uh, Elijah, have you seen what we just did there? Why are you like this? You know, did you see my amazing power on display for you? Well, we don't see that. We see how God meets him in the moment of how he was doing. And he gives him rest, he gives him shelter, and he gives him food. Jesus meets us in the moment and he knows what we need and he moves towards us with perfect compassion. And my prayer for anyone in this room who might be struggling in any ways that you would know that perfect compassion of how God moves towards you in that. 
In this passage, we've seen Jesus take aim at and defeat death. We've seen him encourage us to trust him, and we've seen him move towards us in compassion. It's a passage that points towards and gives us great confidence of what is to come for all of us who put our trust in Jesus. As Jesus called out Lazarus by name out of the grave, Jesus knows you by name if you're his and if you've put your trust in him. Your name will be written in the book of life forevermore. Revelation 3.5 says, All who are victorious will be clothed in white. I will never erase their names from the book of life, but I will announce before my Father and his angels that they are mine. If you are his, he knows your name too, and your future is forever secure with him. As Lazarus is raised in a glorious moment, there is a key difference in what we will experience on that final day. Lazarus was raised to die again. As he walked out of the cave, he was still bound in the linen strips of a dead man, the smell of the grave still on him. And although it's not recorded in Scripture, Lazarus would have died once more. But when we are raised to life with Christ, we will, uh, we will rise on that day clothed, not in the clothes of a dead person, but clothed in his righteousness, the righteousness of Jesus, not with a deathly stench. We will not be stinking but with a fragrant offering where we will live with Jesus forevermore. Revelation 21 says, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. Earlier in John 11, Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Put your full faith in the roaring lion who has defeated death. Put your full faith in the compassionate God who joins you in your hurt and suffering and knows all that you need. Put your full faith in Jesus Christ, who is the resurrection and the life. Let's pray. Father, again, we thank you so much for your word. Thank you for what it reveals to us. We thank you for this reminder that we've had today that Jesus, that you are so, so powerful. Thank you for this reminder of the future for all who believe, that you're with us now and we'll be with you forevermore. Thank you for this reminder that you are deeply compassionate. That you don't miss anything that happens in our lives. That you are moved. And we thank you again for this deep invitation to come and trust in you. 
even when life doesn't seem to make sense to us. Father, help us to trust that your ways are higher than our ways. Help us to live a life that is completely surrendered to you. And Father, we know that we need help in that. And we are so grateful for your Spirit who lives inside all of us who believe. The Spirit, the Helper. Help us to trust in you. Help us to trust in every single word that you say. Help us not just to pick and choose. Help us when we look to base our trust on ourselves or in other people. Help us to put our full faith in you. Jesus Christ, our Savior, our King, the one who is the resurrection and the life. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. As we consider our response, I think it's, it's fitting that we're going to gather around the, the table together and take the Lord's Supper. And as we gather around this table, we're going to continue to remember all that Jesus has done for us. Looking again to the cross of Calvary and to the greatest sacrifice of all. And then looking beyond to his rising three days later. 1 Corinthians 11, these again are, are well-known words, but I'll read them. For I pass on to you that I, what I received from the Lord himself. On the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took some bread and gave thanks to God for it. Then he broke it in pieces and said, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup of wine after supper, saying, This cup is a new covenant between God and his people, an agreement confirmed with my blood. Do this in remembrance of me as often as you drink it. For every time you eat this bread and drink this cup, you are announcing the Lord's death until he comes again. So anyone who eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord unworthily is guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. That is why you should examine yourself before eating the bread and drinking the cup. Uh, what I really want to do just in the time we've got remaining is to give us that space to examine ourselves. Ezekiel 18 verse 30 says, Therefore I will judge each of you, O people of Israel, according to your actions, says the Sovereign Lord. Repent and turn from your sins. Don't let them destroy you. And that verse is a reminder of the seriousness of sin and the command for us to repent and to turn from our selfish ways. The things that we do to exalt ourselves and others over God. Isaiah 57, 15 says, The high and lofty uh, one who lives in eternity, the Holy One says this, I live in the high and holy place with those whose spirits are contrite and humble. I restore the crushed spirit of the humble and revive the courage of those with repentant hearts. So as we come around this table together today, we come with repentant hearts. We come with humility before our God who knows all that goes on inside of us. There's nothing that we're going to say to him that he doesn't know, but there is something so important in that confession towards him. This verse shows that repentance is not about sitting in guilt at all, but it's about restoration and for courage to be revived. 
And so before we gather around the table, I'd like us just take some time in the silence. And just before God to have that time in repentance, to turn to him in all humility, open our hands and say, I'm sorry, God, for when I've got it wrong. I am sorry for the things that I know I have done. I'm sorry for the things that I know that I could do wrong as well. The things that we just, I guess, sins of omission. So why don't we just take a couple of moments in the silence in repentance. And in that as well, consider who are those that you might need to ask forgiveness from and who are the people that you need to offer forgiveness to. Father, as we gather around this table, or we, we gather with hearts that are so full of gladness and thankfulness. We're so thankful for mercy, thankful for your grace, thankful that you, you don't hold any grudges, thankful that there's no payback. We're thankful that we don't get what we deserve but we're getting what we don't deserve. And that's Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, for all that you endured for us. You endured betrayal, trials, mocking, spitting, the vileness of mankind, the worst of the pain that man could conjure up. You endured it all. You went to the cross there and you died on our behalf. You took what we our sin deserves. But there you gave your life for us. A once and for all sacrifice. Thank you for enduring for us because of your love. Thank you that your enduring was for our redemption. For us to have life. For us to be with you forevermore. And so Father, as we've just done, Lord, we, we are sorry for what we have done. We are sorry for the things that we're aware of, the things we aren't, the things that we've done in omission. And Lord, we come before you seeking your forgiveness again. And Lord, we come with uh, to gladness, not taking it for granted in any way, but that full gladness that you're a God, a God who's quick to forgive. So as we take of this bread and this, this juice, as you have commanded, we remember our Savior not as one who is dead in the grave, but as one who is victorious on high, sat at the Father's right hand side. Thank you, Jesus. Amen.